Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, shall we? And we come to verses 20 to 28 this morning. And as is our custom, if you are able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, would you now take your word and meet it with your spirit in our hearts, mold us and make us into the men, women, children that you've called us to be. What a privilege it is to hear your word. Lord, would you use it to encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Teach us where we need to be taught. Reprove us where we need to be reproved and even rebuke if necessary. Have your way with us this morning, we pray. That the name of Jesus might be exalted. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. Last week in the previous passage, you read... That all of these, all of these who were part of that, of this great hall of faith have something in common. And what is it that they have in common? Well, the text tells us, it says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Dominating the headlines for the past few weeks has been the Israel-Hamas war. I'm sure you haven't missed it. This is a conflict that has existed for over seven decades. So it's not unfamiliar to us. And not to oversimplify it, I don't mean to do that, but it's largely a conflict over land. The West Bank the Gaza Strip, the city of Jerusalem itself. And I bring that up because it's my hope, it's my passion, that we think biblically about things, whether that's things in our own homes or whether that's things around the world. 
And it could be tempting for some to read Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Or maybe Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 and 3. And the promise to Abraham, uh, with the promise to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It could be easy to read those passages and conclude, well then, if we want to be blessed, then we need to bless Israel. We need to side with Israel with all things. For after all, Paul tells us in Romans as well, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And indeed, it's true. But I want to be careful here. And I want you to be careful here. And I want you to think carefully. And I want you to think biblically. Because this is a difficult thing, particularly for many of us coming from different backgrounds and traditions, particularly here in Northwest Arkansas. And I, don't, I, I tell you now, I'm not going to speak on, nor do I want to speak on geopolitics as it pertains to our nation's foreign policy. I'm not going to do that. Nor am I going to speak as it regards your own personal politics. However, I do believe it's important that we view the world from a proper biblical perspective. And it is certainly important that we understand the purposes of God in history and in the world in which we live. One may support Israel, for after all, there should be moral clarity when it comes to the killing of non-combatants, the killing and torturing of children and, and families. Indeed. But to give unrestrained, unrestricted support to anything based on a misunderstanding of Scripture or faulty theology does not honor the Lord. To read Psalm 122 or Genesis 12 without Galatians chapter 3, which says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ, would be to miss the purposes of God fulfilled only in Christ Jesus. To read Psalm 122 or Genesis 12 without reading Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, that those of faith desire a better country, a heavenly one, a city that is prepared by God for them, would be to have our eyes focused on a piece of real estate in the Middle East that was but a shadow of the reward to come. To read Psalm 122, Genesis 12, and believe that Israel as a current nation are the people of God would be to miss the wonder and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the true Israel and would be to falsely believe that one could be part of God's people apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, in that Romans passage, Paul says of his kinsmen that they can be grafted back in if they would only believe. And believe in whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. 
in whom is found the people of God and in whom is that ultimate reward. Why does that matter? Because people's eternity depend upon that truth. Because it is only in Christ Jesus where that reward is found. Who are the people of God? They are those, as we've been learning, who live by faith. Those, as our text says, consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of this world. For they are looking for the reward. They were looking for the reward. Like Isaac. Like Jacob. Like Joseph. Like Moses. To persevere has been the call to the Hebrews, hasn't it? To persevere in Christ Jesus. Because it's only in him where, that, where there is reward. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray for Israel, for modern day Israel. We ought to pray for modern day Palestinians. We ought to pray that their hearts would be changed. And that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they too would live by faith in Christ. That righteousness and peace would prevail. That wickedness would cease. And be judged. That justice would abound. Here in this passage, we have examples of those who have indeed, even as Old Testament saints, persevered in Christ. Persevered trusting in the promises of God. Who have demonstrated that they are looking to something better who demonstrate faith at the end of their life. And then we have Moses, who not only at the end of his life, but as the author of Hebrews records it for us, demonstrated faith throughout his life from birth all the way to the end. So those two things I want us to look at simply. Faith at the end of life and faith throughout Life. Let's look first to faith at the end of, of life. And we've got three examples that are laid before us. The first one that we are introduced to is Isaac. Um, and of course, this, where the author here picks up, follows right in line with the example of Abraham, where you learned last Lord's Day, and where we were even already introduced to, I, uh, to Isaac as the child of promise, that child through whom the promise would come. But as we look at Isaac and, and think about Isaac, his life was fairly uneventful. I mean, there were some big things. Of course, Abraham uh, taking Isaac up to the hill for, to sacrifice him and then God providing something in, in his stead. I mean, of course, we have those things. And, and there were those things that took place with Rebecca. Um, and yet that didn't much involve Isaac, really, until Rebecca was brought to him. And, and Isaac uh, tried to engage that same ploy that his father had with Sarah and then pretend that Rebecca was his sister rather than his wife. But that all tended to be found out rather quickly by Abimelech. Uh, but we do know that Isaac acquired a lot of wealth. Isaac required a, um, that, he, that he prayed to the Lord concerning his barren wife and God had answered that prayer for him. 
And so there are some significant things that happened there with Isaac, but the faith for which he was commended was simply this. It says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And we might read that and we go, okay, so he invoked future blessings on them. What, I mean, is that really that big of a deal? That's not that great of a faith exhibited, is it? Because what does it take to do that? I mean, I could maybe, maybe even do that, we would think. But you see, that's, that's part of the very point here because it's not, it's, not look, it's not forcing us for any of these characters to look at them and to say, look how great they are. That's not the point of the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews' point is so that we look at these characters and understand it's not about all that they have done, but it's about the, the promise in which they trusted. It's about the faith that they exhibited in the one who gave those promises. It's about faith in the Lord. And on whom does that depend? Even when he blessed his sons, on whom does that depend? It depends upon the Lord. His faith was demonstrated in passing the blessing and the promise of God down to that next generation. So if we were to go back to Genesis and read about this, we have Jacob and Esau. And even as we were to read, if we were to read about them, we'd notice something very quickly. And that is in the scripture, when they're mentioned, it, all, it says Jacob and Esau. So, well, of course it does. We always call them Jacob and Esau. Well, that's kind of backwards, isn't it? Because in the Hebrew, and even in our culture today, you usually mention the oldest one first, and indeed they would have done the same. It would have, should have been, or not should have been, would have been Esau and Jacob, but it's not. It's Jacob and Esau. Because Jacob is the one mentioned first, because he's the one who received the blessing of the firstborn. We might remember the story, if you don't, Jacob, with the help of his mother, dressed up in animal skins so that he might feel like as well as smell like his brother Esau. And, and just for a moment, just let that image sink in for just a second, if you would. Not, not just to feel like his brother Esau, but to smell like him. Um, I just go, oh, the differences in culture, right? Between, between the two. But that's what they did. They, so that he might feel like his brother Esau. And he, and he goes in and he tricked his elderly father into giving him the blessing. But notice, all of that's not mentioned here in the text. What's mentioned is that Isaac was faithful in invoking the blessing upon his sons, regardless of how it took place. And we may say, well, wait a minute. He really, didn't he only really bless Jacob because, um, because he didn't really bless Esau, but it says both Jacob and Esau. Well, what does this demonstrate? Isaac understood that what had been done couldn't be undone. That is to say, he, he says to Esau, he says, your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. In other words, the blessing had already been given. He's not going to go back and change what God had already declared is that the younger one would receive it instead of Esau. So by faith, by faith, he's, he's trusting the Lord. Even if he was deceived, Isaac is saying, this is... This is what it is. And I'm going to trust in the promise of God. And so he says, he says to him, he says, Behold, away from the fatness of earth shall your dwelling be. Away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live. You shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And we might read that and go, yeah, that's not really a blessing, really. You shall serve your brother. I don't want that. And yet, again, it's what God had already promised. He'd already told Rebekah 
Two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. The, the, the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That had already been made known to Rebekah. Isaac understood that. He knew that promise. And not to mention the fact that Isaac liked Esau better than Jacob. And yet it was through Jacob that the promise was given. And that, that wouldn't have been easy for Isaac. And even though he was tricked as to whom the blessing was given, he still was faithful in invoking the future blessing because he trusted the Lord and what the Lord had promised. Isaac is passing down a faith in the promises of God. This is one of those things that we just can't get away from in this text. The call to pass down the faith to the next generation. We see it with Isaac and we see it as well with Jacob. It says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So if we were to go back again to the book of Genesis in chapter 48, and, and, it, and it tells us the story. And Israel, that is Jacob, stretched out his right hand, laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands as he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Again, the passing down of the faith and not just to the next generation, but the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. You young people, if you have parents who have faithfully passed down the faith, Thank them for it. Honor them for it. And I know we teach our children a lot of things, and we should, but if you aren't passing down a faith in the promises of God, then you're not being faithful to your call. You know, many, particularly in our culture, see it of utmost importance and want to leave a financial legacy for their children. And that's great. That's great. But what about a spiritual legacy? And what are we teaching our children if it's more important for us to pass down a financial legacy than it is a spiritual legacy? Many years ago, a wise older woman said to my wife in reference to the raising of our children, is when, back when my children were little and young. She said, you know, it's not enough to raise a child in a Christian home if Jesus is never talked about. You must raise a child in a Christian home where you talk about Jesus, where you talk about faith. You must actively communicate that faith to your children. I think sometimes we think that others around us, and I know I do this, I'm guilty of this, whether it's my own children or whether it's others, sometimes we are guilty of thinking that others around us learn simply by osmosis, by being around us. And certainly they can, they can learn a, a lot by watching, but they can also learn a lot by what's not said. 
but what they see is not that important to us. So are we actively passing down that faith to the next generation? If we think about the church on this earth and the importance of it and the growth of the kingdom of God on this earth, how do we think that's going to grow? Where do we think the influence comes? Are we passing that faith down to the next generation? Do we see amongst ourselves the pillars of tomorrow's church? Have we instilled in them a love for Christ? A love for his people? A love for the church? Are you talking about Jesus? About faith? About your struggles? about persevering in Christ Jesus, even when it's difficult. When your children pass by and see the news or hear it, or they see the things going on in the world, and they ask you about all of this stuff going on in the world, are your answers founded upon God's word, upon God's purposes and work within this world? Are your answers, uh, um, are, are they have at its foundation also an eternity in view rather than just simply the kingdom of man? Are we thinking in terms of the kingdom of God and things that are ultimate or just the here and now? And instead of Jacob here too, it says bowing in worship over the head of a staff. And we may say that doesn't make much sense. Why add this? Seems so trivial to add that he just leaned over the head of a staff. But it's not trivial because of what the staff represents. It's a symbol of his wilderness. It's a symbol of his wanderings. He's communicating to those after him that we are but wanderers looking forward to the promise of God, looking forward to that reward. And so I think it's fair for us to ask ourselves that same question. What are we teaching our children in that regard? Are we, what, are we, what are we leaning over, as it were, as we communicate with our children? Are we leaning over the things of the world or are we leaning over our hope in the promises of God? What are we demonstrating to them by what we say, by what we do, by what's important to us, by our fear or lack thereof of the things going on in this world? What are we demonstrating to them? What are we communicating to them by how we spend our time, with how we spend our money, uh, would our children believe that we're trusting ultimately in the Lord or would they say, no, my parents trust in their possessions and in their wealth and in their money? What do they see? What do our children see us doing with those things? With our time, with our money, with our efforts and those things that are important to us? What, how would they answer that question? So then we come to Joseph. Joseph is a bit different here because it's not about a blessing, but it is still mentioned at the end of his life. And it says, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, gave directions concerning his bones. And we might read that and go, what's, what's it meant by the mention of the exodus? For after all, it hadn't even happened yet. And, and historically, but you're right, it hadn't, and that's the point. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
I mean, think about this. There's a lot that could have been said about Joseph. A lot. He was sold into slavery. He was taken into Egypt. He rose in power. He rose in status. He became Pharaoh's right-hand man. And yet, it was this for which he was commended. He was commended for his faith in the promise of God. Again, not for all the things that we could have listed. Oh man, Joseph did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. Not that. He was faith, he was commended for his faith in the promise of God. That's where, his, that's where the emphasis is. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. You see, God will save you. God will provide you for you. God will bring you into the land. You look out there or don't look out there. Look up, look, look to the Lord. He's the one who will save you. He's the one who will redeem you. Look to him. This was Joseph's faith in action. His trust was in the promise of God. And so much so did he trust God and, and God's promise that he, that, he act, that he gives directions concerning his bones. Did you notice that? That may seem strange to us. But Joseph made his brothers promise that they would carry his bones with them when God redeemed, redeemed them from Egypt. Why, why would he do such a thing? Because what's being communicated here is that his place, his place was not in Egypt, in a pagan land. Even with all the wealth and the power and the status that he had while he was there, his place was with God and was with his people. And this is important for us too. The city of God is where God dwells with his people. It's not in a piece of real estate in the Middle East. It is in Christ Jesus. And you see here, this pointed beyond the grave, pointed beyond that earthly land to which they would come, that shadow of the heavenly country to that city that was prepared for them. This, what's being demonstrated here is a hope, a hope for that future resurrection of something more to come because of the promise of God. So three episodes were given, all at the end of their lives, commended for their enduring faith in the promise of God. And then the author moves us to Moses. Uh, not simply at the end of his life, but again, as I mentioned, from birth throughout his life. And, and, and it's interesting, much more is said about Moses in this text than the others. But even with all that's said about Moses, I, it's important for us to keep the point before our eyes. All of these things that either happened to Moses or Moses did was because he trusted in the promise of God. That's what's being commended here. We could sum the whole section up in that way. No matter the individual episode, it all points to the promise of God, trusting in him. And, and not only so Moses comes here and it, and it fits chronologically, of course, and historically of that which was to come next, but not only does it follow chronologically, but it also fo uh, follows thematically. And what I mean by that, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph commended for passing down the faith to that next generation, 
to those coming after them. And then where do we begin with Moses? Well, it doesn't actually even begin with Moses, even though it says by faith Moses. It actually is about his parents. By faith Moses, when he was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Again, we see the importance of the faith of the generations before. By faith Moses, but it really didn't have much to do with him because he was an infant. But his parents demonstrated faith by putting him in the basket. As parents, our faith impacts and affects the faith of our children. It ought to, and we ought to ensure that it does. You listen to the wisdom of the world out there, and too often you hear things like, you know, I just, I, I just, I want to be enlightened and all that. I just want my child to come to his or her own understanding of things in life. I want my child to come to his, own under, his or her own understanding of faith. I want my child to discover things for himself or herself. Brothers and sisters, can I say this boldly, but boldly, firmly, and yet graciously, and out of love for that next generation, that is not noble, that is not loving, that is not enlightened, it is foolish, it is despising our children, it is lazy, and it is unfaithful. It's not the call that God gives to us. Moses' parents feared the Lord more than they feared the king. They trusted the Lord and his providence and his sovereignty working behind and in their faith. God protected Moses and caused him to even be brought up in the king's household. Much like Joseph, the success that Moses sees. But even so, even so, by faith, Moses, it says, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now that is an absolutely incredible statement in so many ways. One, not just, well, it shows Moses' great faith, and, and it does. He desired the things of God rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. And we can learn a lot from that just there, can't we? Because we, we understand what we're being told there. We understand the application there to our own faith and life. The pleasures of sin are just that, they're fleeting. They're here temporarily, and then they're gone. And when they're gone, what happens? We're left empty. We're left frustrated. We're left looking for more. The, the book of Ecclesiastes, we can learn about that all day long. It reminds us of that so very powerfully. Vanity of vanities. All is, all is vanity. You get, you get, you experience something and it brings pleasure for the moment. And yet it often has a price to pay. And that's the scheme of the enemy, isn't it? To hold out this promise of pleasure but it doesn't tell you often the cost and the consequences of sin. <coughs> but Moses wanted the Lord, not the things of man. Well, that's a proper prayer, isn't it? Oh, Lord, help me desire the things of you and not the things of this world. Change me. 
work in my heart. So it's incredible in the application of it, but it's also incredible theologically. Notice carefully what it says of Moses. Long before the incarnation of Christ, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Here's the author of Hebrews looking back to Moses. And he's saying to these early Hebrew Christians, these early Christian Jews, look, I know you're being tempted to turn away from Christ because of the criticism, because of the persecution. Maybe even some of your family members are making fun of you. Maybe some of them have even shunned you and they don't want any part of you because of Christ. Because of the reproach of Christ. And the author of Hebrews is saying, but Moses didn't turn away. Moses considered this very reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And let's think about all the wealth he had in Egypt. He was Pharaoh's son, the run of the palace. And yet, yet he'd rather have the reproach of Christ. Why? Because Moses was looking to the reward to which the treasures of Egypt did not compare. He was looking to the reward. He was looking ahead to that which awaits the children of God in Christ Jesus. You, you struggle with wanting the things of this world? I do too. That's a struggle, isn't it? I do too. You struggle with raising certain things above Christ? I do too. I struggle with that. So did the early Hebrew Christians. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look to, your father, look to a father in your faith. Look to Moses. He, all that he had in Egypt. All that he had in Egypt. But by faith he clung to Christ. Why? Because he knew what he had in Christ is greater than what the world can offer. Do we, I wonder sometimes, do we believe that? And yes, I said Moses clung to Christ. He hadn't even come yet. And Moses didn't know all there was to know about him. Certainly. But that promise that he believed was Christ Jesus. And he clung to him. That's remarkable, isn't it? By faith, he left Egypt. Not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured to seeing him who is invisible. Moses didn't keep his eyes on, the, on that king who was in pursuit, but instead he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. Moses kept his eyes on the Lord. He knew that the Lord would redeem. He knew that the Lord would rescue. He knew that his only hope was in the Lord. And we know that too, because it, it, the author of Hebrews makes that clear. This is why he puts in that part about him keeping the Passover. By faith, he kept the Passover and he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Look what's being communicated here. Could Egypt, 
All that Egypt had to offer. Could Egypt do anything when it came to salvation? Could Egypt do anything when it came to those ultimate things? The answer is no. Well, we can look out there at the world. Can the world do anything? Can these pleasures do anything? Can the government do anything? Can medicine do anything when it comes to these ultimate things? And guess what? Not a one of them. Not a one of them can do a thing in regard to that ultimate issue of eternity. Not a one. Even here, could the king himself escape the judgment of God? Well, if we go back to read Exodus 12, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Notice what it says. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. All the power, all the wealth, all the possessions, all the status of Egypt couldn't help one to escape the judgment of God. That's sobering, isn't it? Only the provision that was given by God himself. And what is that provision? That provision is the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, that blood that is spilt for the redemption of his people. And so it brings us right back, doesn't it? to the purpose of the author of Hebrews. Salvation, redemption, is only in the Lamb provided by God. And even Moses put his trust in him. Now that should, should, if we were to begin to understand that the most important thing are these eternal things, and our biggest problem is sin before God, then that ought to drive us to the worship of our Savior. But too often, the forgiveness of our sin is not the most important thing to us. We would rather bow the knee to other things in life. We would rather praise, I'm going to say it, a sports team. A football team. Or whatever else it is. We jump up and down for that. And I realize we're Presbyterians. but we don't do a, So we don't do a lot of jumping up and down. But we do a lot of jumping up and down for a touchdown. And I wonder how many times our hearts, our hearts leap. In wonder of our Savior. The forgiveness of sin cleansed, righteous in the sight of God. So the call to the early Hebrews was persevere in Christ. And that's the call to you too. And to me. Persevere in Christ Jesus. Trust in the promise of God. Trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain on behalf of the children of God. Because brothers and sisters, there is more than this world. There is a city waiting for us. Prepared by God. Where righteousness dwells. And where we will one day as well. And we get a foretaste of that here. As we gather in the name of Christ. There are little cities of God all over this world. And here's one of them. Here's one of them. 
but we look to that which is to come. Let's pray, shall we? Our God in heaven, may that truth move us. Lord, I, I, I would confess that in my own heart. May it move me. But may it move us. And may that be what, our, may that be what this church is about. The Lord Jesus Christ. Turn our eyes to you. To you, our God, our Savior. Amen.